This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, you had to know we were going to ask you about this as soon as you heard the story in the news, right? For our hot question of the day today, we have to talk about the booze on the boat. BC Ferries is moving ahead with their pilot project starting in October, where they're going to add beer and wine to the Pacific Buffet. So this is on the Vancouver, Victoria, you know, Tuas and Swartz Bay routes. They've got some available, some alcohol already available on the northern routes, but this is going to be the first time that it is available on these kind of major routes on the three big ships that go back and forth there. So this is going to start in late October, and there are some rules around this, obviously. It is one drink per customer. It has to be purchased with a meal. And as I said, it's only a one-year trial program. Uh, So that's a big deal, I think, for a lot of people who have been saying, yeah, I wouldn't mind having one drink, uh, you know, with the buffet. You're sitting down, you're having a nice meal. Why not? Well, obviously, the concern on the other side of this is, you know, most people are going to be driving off the boat, right? And should you be even saying one drink at that point? That's the other side of it. And I know, People have thoughts on this. That's why we're asking you for our hot question of the day. Is this a good idea? Do you say yes? Why not? Booze on the boat. Or no, do you think this is a safety risk? Now, we did talk to um, uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving about this when this was first uh, thought about or floated as a trial balloon months ago. They don't like this idea. I don't They don't like anything with this idea of um, alcohol and cars, that anything to do with that combination. But there are some rules, as I mentioned. One drink per customer purchased with a meal. And it's not like you're going to be able to eat White Spot, you know, on the on the ferry and have a beer. That's still not possible. It's at the Pacific Buffet, which is, you know, a little bit higher end. Only so many people get into it on that ferry route. And you can have one drink per customer purchased with the meal. Are you okay with that? Or do you think, no, this is just a bad idea in general? So let's find out what you think. Go to our hot question of the day. You'll see it at Sarah 980 on Twitter or at CKNW is where you will find that. You can email me, simi at cknw.com and call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-2899. Oh, lots of votes coming in on this thing already on the hot question of the day because we put it up about 20 minutes ago. 66% of people have already voted to say they think this is a good idea, almost 100 votes already. And about 34% don't like it. They think it's a safety risk, but you can cast your vote on this. We'll be checking back in throughout the show today. Is this a good idea or not? Adding beer and wine to the Pacific Buffet on the Vancouver-Victoria ferry routes, you let us know. We are supposed to have a federal election on or before October 21st of this year, as determined by fixed-date legislation. Now, the main federal parties have got their campaign slogans ready. I mean, you've been seeing probably some of the commercials already. Uh, They've got the signs printed. They're ready to go. The only thing we're missing is the actual election call. When is this going to happen? Well, joining us now to talk more about that is David Aiken, our chief political correspondent uh, for Global News. And he's joining us from Winnipeg. David, thanks so much for being with us. 
Yeah, no problem, Simi. And you're absolutely right. The campaign is underway in all but official name. Uh, Jugmeet Singh and the NDP, they started on Sunday. They said, we're not waiting for the prime minister to formally declare the election. And uh, they were in Toronto today making some housing announcements. Other parties, including the Liberals, have campaign-style ads already out there. So, um, so yeah, now all we need is the official writ drop, as they say. And, and that's important because... Then a bunch of rules kick in about how parties, and third parties, I should, to be frank, um, can conduct themselves in trying to persuade you right. to vote one way or the other. Okay. Were we supposed to get it on the weekend? Like, did Hurricane Dorian change anything? N- nobody really knows for sure. I mean, it's obviously the Liberals' closely guarded secret because they have the advantage in saying, it, we're boom, we're on the way. But... Yes, I think there was some expectation that the Prime Minister might have said on Sunday, he'd gone and visit the Governor General, to say, let's get it going. Let's have a five-week campaign ending October 21st, which would have started Sunday. But I am told that the hurricane did factor into some considerations in terms of when to start this thing. I mean, uh, this morning we woke up, I think there were still a couple hundred thousand people in uh, Atlanta, Canada, without power. So I think that is a consideration. And then the other other thing to consider is one of the reasons I'm in Winnipeg right now is there is a provincial general election, right. which concludes tomorrow. So on Tuesday uh, is Manitoba's general election day. Manitoba uh, will choose between the incumbent PC Premier Brian Pallister or a new Democrat challenger, Wab Canoe. That happens Tuesday. And there's also thinking, you know, do you, you want to have a general election while a provincial election is wrapping up? It's not unprecedented, but it is extremely rare. Right. But then the calendar kind of closes, right? Like we're really kind of running out of time to make sure we get those weeks in. That's right. So under our fixed date election law, and this was the, that that law was brought in by the Harper gang. Ironically, Harper broke his own law at his first opportunity. But nonetheless, um, Harper brought in this fixed date election law. And then the Trudeau gang, they fine-tuned it. And their fine-tuning was this, that they set a minimum and a maximum length of the election uh, of election campaign and the minimum length is five weeks and if we want to have want to honor that fixed date election of october 21st then trudeau must call the election by september the 15th that's this sunday and so for those who care if you're wondering about uh, you know when might he call this he's he's it's not going to be called tomorrow um, i'm almost certain of that at this point in time tomorrow tuesday the date of the manitoba election there's odds he could call it on wednesday but you're probably getting low odds or the the the, the, the smart money if you will at this point is he'll call it on thursday um on th- that would be the, the the one of the reasons wednesday's out of the out of the gate is because that's september the 11th and they're just some right. you know that's a date that people have some superstitions about so look for the 12th thursday or maybe he waits to the weekend and we have uh, the shortest campaign possible of five weeks okay and what changes when that happens david you talked about the rules that come in place between now and then like what ads will we see and then not see once the election is called Right. So right now we're in an official pre-writ period and there are some specific rules about how much parties can spend on advertising. But there's no restrictions on how much parties can spend on travel. If, you know, Andrew Shear wants to go run around the country, uh, he doesn't, he's under no restrictions. And the Conservatives have a lot of money, so they could, they could run up the tab doing whatever they want, though they are restricted on advertising. 
Once the writ period uh, starts, that's the official campaign, now all parties are under some restrictions. They have a limit in terms of the total they can spend on polling, advertising, traveling their people around the country. And that restriction uh, sort of evens the field out between the two richest parties, the Liberals and the Conservatives. Additionally, there are now restrictions on third parties. So, for example, let's say you have an environmental group which is running an ad right now that just says this, when you cast your ballot, think about climate change. Mm -hmm. That's called an issue ad, and there's no restrictions right now on a third party, such as an environmental group, that just runs that ad. Doesn't mention any politician, doesn't mention any party, just says, think about climate change. Well, when the campaign starts, that third party group, that environmental group, now also has to register, has to identify where their funding comes, and, and is limited on their, quote, issue ads. So if they do run in a week's time, this environmental group, think about climate change. We need to know how much you're spending and who is funding that. That, too, is a new rule brought in by the Liberals. Right. Are all the parties ready here? Does everybody have their candidates in place? I know the NDP is kind of playing catch up. Uh, no, all the parties are not ready. Uh, the only party to have a full slate of candidates in all 338 ridings is the Conservatives. The Green Party is doing a very good job. They are approaching 300 candidates getting ready to go. The Liberals, too, about three quarters at the last count. Uh, the New Democrats were well behind. Uh, even though their leader is essentially on a tour right now and he's campaigning, uh, they still have... Uh, a lot of missing candidates, mostly in Atlantic Canada, but also in Ontario. I think, you know, the, cons the NDP is focused heavily on British Columbia. Of course, the leader is from Burnaby. That's his riding. And the NDP are going to have a heck of a fight on their hands in the south end of Vancouver Island. Of course, the Greens yeah. hold Nanaimo and they hold Saanich. And um, there's about three other ridings the NDP currently hold on the south end of Vancouver, including Vancouver Island, including Victoria. And the Greens are really gunning for those ridings. And what does polling tell us right now, David? I know that things change, like we certainly saw that in the 2015 election, right? Mm -hmm. So where are we at right now, and what are you going to be watching for? We, we, have a, a, we don't have, you'll see the top line number, the national average for a lot of polls. And I don't think that counts for a whole lot right now, because we really do have four, maybe five maybe six regional races. I just mentioned Vancouver Island is a race unto itself where there's, you know, the Conservatives in the north part of the island are very strong. Then we have this green NDP and Conservative mix, quite frankly, on the south end. Mm -hmm. In the rest of BC, it's a tight three-way race. The uh, Liberals, the Conservatives, and the NDP are all polling pretty much uh, relatively between each other. So there's going to be a lot of seats, a lot of battlegrounds in the lower mainland and into the interior. Then once, of course, we hit the prairies, Alberta and Saskatchewan, you won't see a leader go near there from any party. Why? They made their minds up. They're all voting yeah. conservative, you know, with maybe one or two exceptions. Then Ontario, Quebec, and Atlantic Canada, they all have their own dynamics, whether you're around the GTA, the, the Toronto area, or somewhere else. So the lay of the land right now is, um, you know, I would say general advantage to the Liberals, uh, the Trudeau Liberals, but it's a can campaign's matter. We could see a minority come back that Andrew Scheer might try to negotiate his way through, or Trudeau may come back with a minority. Wow, so much to look forward to. It's going to make your job so interesting for the next uh, two months, David. Oh, yeah. And, Simi, I've said this before on your show. On election night, B.C. could not only – I think B.C. is going to decide minority or majority. B.C. could decide the government. I mean, everybody in the country got to stay up late to watch how B.C. votes. And have to make sure we vote. David, thank you so much for that. 
Thanks. Cheers. Yeah, same to you. That's David Aiken, our chief political correspondent uh, for Global News. Right now he's in Winnipeg, where, as he mentioned, Manitoba is having a provincial election tomorrow. So he is covering that. His prediction for the election call, the federal election call coming Thursday, that makes sense, right? You're not going to do it on Manitoba's election day. You're not going to do it on September 11th. So Thursday sounds like a, a pretty a safe bet for when this election is going to be called. You know, lately it seems like we've heard about these stories where dogs seem to be the target, whether it's parks, trails, whatever the case. Now we've got this other one being reported here, this time on Burnaby Mountain. Our next guest was walking his two dogs in that area this weekend when he came across something pretty scary and shocking, actually, designed, it seems, to hurt animals. Now, Jeff Kerr is with us to talk about what it is that he found. He joins us now. Jeff, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Simi. Can you tell me the story, Jeff, about what happened? Sure. Uh, we're walking. Um, we live in the Burnaby Mountain area, so we walk up on Burnaby Mountain uh, almost every day. Uh, I've got two dogs that are sort of uh, husky crosses, so they need a lot of exercise. So it's, it's a great spot for us. Mm-hmm. So Saturday we get out um, and we just enter into the trailhead. The dogs, uh, uh, one of our, um, our, my white dog, Murphy, sort of ducks into the underbrush and pops out. And she's got something in her mouth. And she kind of gives me a look. And I kind of looked at her like, you know, no, you shouldn't have that. So uh, I called her over and she came. And I, I couldn't tell what it was initially that she had, but upon closer inspection, I could see that it was a, a chunk of meat with something shiny in it. So it took a couple of uh, minutes uh, of um, debate whether or not she was going to give it back to me or not. Right. But she finally gave it up, and I, uh, when I um, examined it, it was, it was a piece of beef that had at least 12 um, sewing needles uh, inserted into it. Um, and sewing needles are quite small, right? Like it's, they are quite small. Yeah. 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 And uh, so it must've been tough, ones. Jeff, it must've been tough to get her to drop that. Like, you know, when dogs have something and they don't want to give it up. Yeah. And she, she's a rescue dog. So she, uh, I think was, was fairly self-sufficient for the first three years of her life, uh, before we adopted her. So she did some scavenging, and I'm sure, and uh, and yeah, uh, a chunky, uh, a chunky beef, uh, a piece of beef. Uh, she didn't want to give up easy, but uh, it took, took a few minutes. But she did initially give it up, and I wonder now if if maybe she did get poked uh, with some of the the needles, and that's why she didn't just right. uh, wolf it down while she was in the underbrush. Right. Okay. So then you, you take a good look at it and you, it wasn't just needles, right? There was some other stuff there as well. Yeah. You, you know, I, I, um, uh, I threw it in a, a, you know, dog waste bag and uh, we continued on our walk. And then when we got back to sort of the, uh, the end of the trail, there's a garbage can. I thought, you know, I kind of, as I, I looked at it initially, I, I kind of remember seeing a little hole in, uh, in the piece of beef, um, so I took it back out of the bag and uh, had a closer inspection. And I could, when I sort of opened it up, I could see that it was actually stuffed with corn, some peppercorns and something that looked uh, like some kind of a berry, like a cranberry or, or something like that. So it was something that somebody either bought that was pre-prepared as a, a, you know, a sirloin tip stuffed with corn and peppercorns, or they did it themselves. Um, but uh, but it was you know the 
the fact that somebody sort of went through uh, and, and pre-planned this to put the needles in and right. take it to the trail and put it in is, is quite frightening. Right. And so how, like, how close to the trail was this, do you think? Uh, we were, uh, you know, 15 steps into the, the you know, uh, the initial trailhead. Um, and she was maybe another 15 steps through the underbrush. So it was, you know, I suspect within that throwing distance of somebody walking in the trail, throwing it off to the side. Right. Is this an um, off-leash trail, Jeff? It's not. It isn't uh, uh, an off-leash trail. And it, um, and, th- and that's partly my my fault. Uh, but I've got two, you know, the dogs are both fairly strong dogs. And they both went to the bathroom in this sort of grassy area, the trailhead. Right. So I was trying to pick up the their, their dog waste. Um, so I clicked them off the leashes, picked up the dog waste, went back to the garbage, put it in the garbage and went back to collect them. And that's when she came out, um, with, right. with the product. Now, do you feel, has this ever been an issue before having off leash dogs in an area where they are meant to be leashed? Uh, you know, it's, it's fairly high on Burnaby mountain. So it, uh, you know, it, it is getting more and more popular. Uh, it's a it's a really active uh, mountain biking area. A lot of the trails are maintained by the uh, Burn Mountain Mountain Biking uh, Club, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of those mountain bikers have dogs, uh, and you know the dogs sort of follow behind. Uh, so there, you know, there there is a lot of dogs that are off off leash up in the upper area of uh, Burnaby Mountain on those North Road trails, um, and large dogs and a lot of small dogs as well. Um, Have you ever heard of any other kind of problem, though, in that area or any kind of conflict? Haven't, no. And I've been, we've lived in that neighborhood for, you know, 20 plus years. And uh, I've been riding my bike up there and uh, walking with the dogs up there for, you know, that entire time. And and we're up there almost every day um, walking them. So never really had an issue. And, uh, you know, people who walk and people who ride mountain bikes really coexist well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's always very cordial and, you know, people, you know, kind of know this is what it is up here is that you might run into a mountain biker and there might be a dog, um, you know, and, and for all intents and purposes, there could be bear or a cougar or a coyote that you run into as well. So, right. Uh, you know, what did you do with the, with the meat after you had found it and realized what, what it was? I, uh, I took a couple of photos and, uh, then at the end of our walk, I threw it in the, uh, the garbage container that uh, is up there on the mountain. Right. But you, you told the RCMP about this? Uh, we phoned the SPCA and, um, and uh, no, we didn't call the, uh, the RCMP, but they are aware of it from my understanding. Right. So when you, mm-hmm. you phoned the SPCA to let them know, had they, did they indicate that they'd ever heard of any other problems in that area? Uh, they, from what I understand, there, there has been reports of, something on the other side of the mountain and in North Vancouver, they were having an issue as well, I think. Yeah. Um, but, but not, uh, they didn't say like, yes, we've seen this in, on these particular trails. Um, right. How does that make you feel though? Like this is where you take your dogs. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, we went up Sunday and um, yeah, quite frankly, I didn't spend a whole lot of time. So Makes you a bit nervous. Uh, place that, yeah, very, very nervous. Um, you know, and uh, it's a place that, like I was saying, I spent probably more than twenty years walking up in these trails to 
uh, right. feel nervous about being out there now. It's, you know, it's not great. It's, uh, do you think it'll, nice. like, will it change anything that you do, do you think, after finding this? Well, um, yeah, you know, I think yesterday, uh, I, you know, I think, well, maybe I'll just walk around the neighborhood. Um, but then you kind of think inside, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't let uh, somebody's um, issue like this uh, predetermine what I do. And, and, and I think that's probably what they're, they're hoping to achieve is that, you know, maybe people with dogs um, won't come up here. But, um, you know, uh, the interesting thing is, is that there's so much wildlife up there. You, know, yeah. you could run into coyotes or deers or bears. I mean, we, we ran into a bear three weeks ago up there, you know, so it isn't like it's, you know, it's not just dogs. It's not just dogs. Yeah, it's not just talking dogs. About here. Yeah, yeah, that is true. All right, uh, Jeff, thank you very much for your time on this today. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, sharing. Well, that is Jeff Kerr. Uh, he's got the two dogs. Uh, you've been hearing this story in the news this morning. They were walking up on the North Road Trail on Saturday afternoon up on Burnaby Mountain. And one of his dogs uh, came across this piece of raw beef that they believe had something like at least 12 sewing needles stuck in it. Plus, they said it was also covered with like peppercorns and cranberries and things. So clearly very attractive to any animal, not just dogs. The doorman goes to me, wow, i never seen a plane flying so low. I saw a 767 veer to the left and fly directly into South Tower. Oh, my God! Ah! Ah! Oh, my gosh! Something just blew up. Now it's now it's the second building also. And I'm standing next to a fireman. He said, yeah, they just bombed the Pentagon, too. We do not have an estimate on the number of casualties. United Airlines is confirming that its Flight 93 did crash. The deliberate and deadly attacks which were carried out yesterday against our country were more than acts of terror. They were acts of war. This week, we will mark 18 years since those attacks on September the 11th. And I know everybody out there, if you're old enough, you remember exactly where you were, what was going on, what you were thinking and doing in the moment when you first heard about what was happening on the East Coast of the United States. It is a day that every year we try to remember and we talk about. It's a day that America faced an unprecedented day of terror where 19 members of Al-Qaeda had hijacked four passenger airplanes, two of those planes hitting the World Trade Center, one into the Pentagon, the fourth into a field in western Pennsylvania. Almost 3,000 people were killed that day. Now that is, as I said, a day we will never forget. And for our next guests, we wanted to make sure that we remembered that event and we have, I think, the perfect people to help us do that today. Their memories are probably more profound than anybody else that we could talk to. These four people who are our next guests were actually working in New York that day, attending the scenes in the in Lower Manhattan as first responders. So I'm going to start by getting everybody to introduce. We've never had so many people, I think, in the studio at the same time uh, talking about this. So I'm going to start over here. Could I just get you to introduce Hi, yourself? Uh, Sergeant Marna Rand, retired. Hi, I'm Detective, Chris- <clears throat> I'm Detective Christine Reyes. I work at the Bronx Homicide Squad. Uh, Rob, Rob Rood, I work with the fire department. I'm a paramedic. Uh, Dennis O'Connell, retired from the NYPD's Emergency Services Unit. Well, we can't thank you enough for being with us today to share your stories. I'll start this way and go over. Uh, tell me what, what it was like for you that day. What was happening? Well, like I said, uh, we're so used to being, as, as first responders, we're so used to showing up to a scene after the incident has occurred and being a, the problem solver. Um, on 9-11, we were... You know, we, we were part of the victims. Uh, like I said, uh, it involved us heavily. It involved our ability to respond. 
Um, so again, emotionally, uh, you had to keep yourself in check and basically really relied on whatever training you had to keep you going after, like I said, such a, such a big event. Like I said, it really taxed all of our, our assets in the city very, very quickly. And yet it was still unfolding, still developing as you were all <clears throat> responding. Robert, what was it like for you? Uh, well, I was responding from my rescue truck from Astoria, which is about, uh, say, five miles from uh, downtown. And by the time I, I grabbed the truck to drive it, there was only one building on fire. And then when I came out of Midtown Tunnel on the other side, it was two buildings on fire. So we, right away we thought it was something other than just an accident. And like uh, the sergeant says, is, uh, it was uh, tough to work uh, with the victims, but even tougher to know that our friends were suffering at the same time. Um, before the collapse, we had all kinds of accidents with the firemen that started going up the steps. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty tough to deal with that and uh, not be able to really do 100% your job because you're worried about who, where your friend is, where your partner is, which I didn't find out until uh, a couple of weeks after where I found out that he had died in the building. Mm. So, yeah. Chaos. It, was, it, it sounds like really it was tough. just chaos. Yeah, it was chaos, yeah. Christine, tough. what was it like for you? Well, uh, I was freshly out the academy, four months out the academy. Really? Um, I didn't get to go down to the... Ground zero until three days later. And seeing everything, it seemed like it was out of a movie scene. It seemed so surreal. A lot of dust, the smell, a lot of, lot of images that you just can't get out of your head. How has that impacted your career, though? And that's, that was the first major event that you dealt with right out of the academy. Um, I think it made me stronger, um, made me focused, um, Moving forward, I there was there's so many people that were impacted uh, health wise with 9/11 cancers and illnesses. My, my I myself um, I ended up with thyroid cancer. So thyroid cancer is one of the top 15 cancers that first responders had um, were diagnosed with. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's you know it's it's been what a uh, scary thing because you don't think about that in the moment, no. right? And then you're finding out years later that you probably know. Do you all know people who have had health problems yes. as a result yes. of this? Yeah, I think yes. all, yes. I think all yeah. of us have health all problems. Yeah. Really? Respiratory yeah. or intestinal. Marna, what was it like for you? Um, I was off that morning. I saw it happen. I went straight to my command, and they held us till a little later. And we went. I think we went like around four o'clock downtown and um i was there for a while i don't don't even remember when i went home it was probably a day or two later it was so intense yeah just doing everything that needed to be done at that Mm -hmm. point you mentioned the health problems as well what kind of health problems have you had um i have upper respiratory problems sinus problems um that's it for right now thank god yeah um has everybody have you received help the support over the years in dealing with those health problems? Yes, yes. the 9-11 program, the Segroga bill, which they just, thank goodness, they just extended. We followed along, yes. yeah. Uh, that's, that, that's huge because it, some of these things, like I said, they developed so long after that we don't know. And there's other guys and people out there that are suffering from things that aren't included on that bill yet. And basically they have to do studies. It is a whole process for something mm-hmm. to be able to be put on that so it will actually be covered by it. 
but like I said, the numbers, and it's not just the cops and the firemen, it's the construction workers, the people that live down there, the people that evacuated mm-hmm. the building. So it's a, it's bigger than just first responders. Right. How do these ceremonies make you feel? I know you've got quite a few events going on here. You're here this week, and thank you very much for being here for a number of different events, including down at the Peace Arch, which the public is welcome to go down and attend. But, Martin, I'll start with you. How do these ceremonies make you feel every year? Um, it's easier for me to deal with it out here than home. Why do you say that? Too traumatic at home. Still, the memories are still so strong. So being on yeah. the road, a little bit easier for you. It's, it's a little easier, and it shows that people still remember, people still care. It's not forgotten. Is that reassuring for you? Yes. Yes. Definitely reassuring. Christine, how about you? It's emotional. Yeah. Is it, as Marna said, easier for you as well to not be in New York? Yes. yes. Absolutely. Still clearly very hard for you to talk about this. And how about you, Robert? Uh, yeah, it's very emotional. It's <sighs> still very emotional. I stop not to cry. Um, you see this guy smiling at you in the beginning of the day in your tour, and then he doesn't come back with you. So it's pretty tough. But I think it's very important that we do this. Even though we go through this, it's important that we do this so that they don't forget, nobody ever forgets that this happened. And... Uh, People are still suffering from it, and thank God. Uh, I don't have much going on as far as uh, side effects from, from that day. I am using a pump, a, a preventive pump, to help me breathe sometimes at night, but that's about it, so I thank God for that. But there are other people that really suffer, and it's very important, important that we go through this so that nobody ever forgets. And so when you see the crowds come out and you do get to talk about it, even though I know it's very difficult for all of you, does that make you as well, Robert, feel just a little bit better? Is there any reassurance? It definitely does, because I see that there's a lot of people that actually are on our side. You don't want to know that you are alone out there fighting these things. So, yeah, it's very important for me to see that a lot of people. And it makes me happy to see that there's uh, people recognizing Mm -hmm. the type of job that we all do uh, when it comes to these tragedies. Dennis, is there reassurance for you as well in this? Oh, absolutely. Like you like said, I hope in, so. Yeah, like you <laughs> said in your opening statement, you know, everybody remembers exactly where they were when this happened. This, yeah. this was a global event. This was a world changer. Um, so, like I said, well, when you go out, and like you said, we come up here to Canada, and you know, and, and you go other places, and you see the support. I mean, it really makes you feel good. It makes you feel like the risks that you took were well, well worthwhile. And like you said, you, you lose your friends, and you know, your, your friends are gone, but their families are still out there. Mm-hmm. So again. Any kind of support when a lot of people show up at these things, it helps them that to know that, hey, you know, my husband, my wife, they, they, they didn't die in vain. Firefighters, you should all report to your companies. Again, if you are a New York City firefighter, drop what you're doing, report to your company. A major disaster is occurring in New York City this morning. We have some very special guests in studio for us who that call right there was just all too close to home for them. We have four first responders with us who were working in New York City on September 11, 2001. They attended to those scenes in lower Manhattan. They are sharing their thoughts and memories with us now. One of the reasons why they are here, though, is for the ceremonies that happen in other cities to mark uh, 9-11. There will be one happening at the Peace Arch border crossing. Uh, It's Wednesday morning. 
10.30. You are welcome to go. The public can go. There will be about 500 first responders, members of the military there. There's a barbecue fundraiser also by donation. So if you get a chance, if you're in that vicinity, the great event and our four guests will also be there. Uh, what I wanted to ask you all about today too is, and Dennis, I'll start with you. What changed about your job before 9-11 and then after 9-11? Well, it, it changed tremendously. Uh, the unit I was in, um, we did a lot of the heavy rescue for the city, plus we did all the SWAT work for the city, so a lot of protection issues. So, again, everything and every, you know, New York City is really, it's the hub of the world. So, you know, besides having to deal with the actual disaster itself, you had the other parts of the city that was still going on, people that needed protected, areas that needed protected, because nobody knew exactly when it was going to stop. Mm-hmm. So, really, for that next... Six months, I mean, these people will tell you, too, you know, there wasn't a lot of home life. It was, you worked, work, you work, went home, work. took a nap, came back in. Um, like I said, like Mike said, myself, I think I was home six times between 9-11 and December 21st. Uh, basically, because you have people working around the clock. Either you worked at the, uh, down at the site, or you had other duties that had to get done. Your regular also. duties, right. yeah. Yeah, like I said, nothing stops. You know. And Robert, what was it like for you? Well, if I, I think I come out on one of the recordings and at the museum where I'm screaming, we need more masks, we need more masks, we couldn't breathe. And we're tending to people, but we ourselves couldn't breathe because the dust was so thick, and uh, I was screaming that. But uh, what changed was that they gave us better equipment, better masks that covered a whole more, a broader spectrum of things that we could breathe in. Um, training about uh, this type of situation, about this type of uh, disasters. So, yeah, we're more protected now than we were before. We're better, better prepared, we better prepared, unfortunately. Yes. Unfortunately, yes. Christine, for you, you were saying you've just been on the job a couple months out of the academy. What is being an officer now like versus before that had happened? Being an officer now, it, my career has taken uh, – it. I'm sorry. No, it's of course. <laughs> Take your time. Um, Starting out on patrol, you get to interact with a lot of the community. Um, I mean, after 9-11, you have more of an eye on things, more visibility. Um, You know, you have to be out there paying attention to everything. I mean, it was always, you know, you have to watch your back at all times, but even more so with the the terrorist uh, activity. And any time there's a big event in New York now... It's probably much more high security than it was before. Much more. We have different units um, with uh, the CRC, SRG. Yeah. Um, a lot of them, you know, they walk around with, you know, the big heavy artillery. I've seen that there, and it's very serious, yeah. 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 Marna, what was it like for you? A um, lot more training, a lot of high visibility posts to make sure everybody was protected. We had people just posted all over in very in very busy spots to make sure that nothing else happened and um there were a lot of calls for suspicious packages right after right. that that would be very stressful too right there must have been like that heightened state of tension that you had mm-hmm. afterwards where people were naturally very worried mm-hmm. how did you deal with that Every, everything had to be taken seriously yeah like i said you, you couldn't uh you know you know just kind of tone everything down, you had to respond to everything. I mean, it, the, the call volume was through the roof. Um, like I said, anything was a suspicious package. Everything was, you know, people were worried. 
and rightfully so. Man, this is an event that could have happened anywhere. It happened in New York, but it could have happened here in Vancouver. It could have been Hong Kong. It could have been anywhere, you know, wherever they chose to do it. Like I said, uh, so, yeah, everybody, you know, the, the emotions on the public were running high, and they were scared. But I got to tell you, uh, it's amazing how people come together in a disaster. True. And they support each other. And uh, like I said, crime dropped tremendously in New York City for, you know, a month or so after that because, again, people were worried about other things than than that. So, again, people will come together. You know, like I said, it, 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 as bad as it was, it still makes us stronger. And when you come to a place like Vancouver, which seems like a long way from New York City, and you see that people here, it's obviously um, very impactful for people here. Are you surprised by that? No, it was it was a world event. You had people from all over there. You had people come from Vancouver to come help us all all over the United States. So it's it's really it's it's both countries, you know. People people just came together. Christine, did you feel that support, do you think, Absolutely. from all over as well? It was amazing to be out there and see all the different uh police departments and different agencies from all over the country just yeah. coming together and just helping out like whatever they can do. It, that was amazing. And that makes people feel better because like, yeah. you send people and you're like, I, we don't know if this is going to help, but Robert, did it help, do you think? It does. It does help, especially if you travel abroad, not only to this side of the world, but maybe in Europe, if you go to Africa, people will stop you. And if you say, yes, I was in New York in 9-11, they want to know what happened and uh, thank you for your service. So, yeah, everybody knows about this. So it, 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 the thing that we do right now is the, for the better, for all of us to understand mm-hmm. what happened that day. And that to never forget, like I said before, never yeah. forget. Dennis, what would you like people to take away? Then every year we, we talk about it on September 11th. What would you like people to keep in mind? Well, like I said, it's that sense of community, that world community. Mm-hmm. Like I said, the, there's good people in the world, and you know, and that's what's nice. You go out, like like he's like uh, Robert Roberto said, that you go and people are like thank you for doing what you're doing, or you'd be surprised at how many places you go, even here. Well, I knew somebody. That was in New York at that mm-hmm. t- that day, yeah. or affected their family. So it affected people around the world. So I, again, that that sense that hey, we're here together, we're going to support each other, we'll get through anything as a human race. That's just it's just fantastic. Well, we thank you very much for your time on this today. Thank you. And thank I know you. it can't be easy to relive it every year, but you do an amazing job, and your stories are so important. So we thank you for joining us today. No, thank, thank you, you very thank you. Thank you much. If you us. would like to uh, commemorate the moment as well on September 11th, all of our first responders who visited us today will be at the Peace Arch Border Crossing Wednesday morning. 10.30, joined by hundreds of other first responders and military. It is open to the public. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You can go down there and participate. There's also going to be a barbecue kind of fundraiser by donation as well. So you can check all of that out and you can join them on Wednesday, uh, September the 11th. Well, we've talked a lot about the homelessness issue the last couple of weeks, especially in light of what we have seen happening at Oppenheimer Park in Vancouver. 
But as we've also said, this isn't just a Vancouver issue. Municipalities all over BC and Metro Vancouver in particular have been dealing with this. And one of the ways in which this has been kind of tackled is to put up temporary modular housing. It's worked well in some areas, like in Surrey and some Vancouver neighborhoods, where empty land or parking lots were available. Except now, places to put that type of housing are running low. So now where do we put temporary modular housing? Well, Vancouver City Councillor Christine Boyle has some thoughts on that, and she joins us now to talk more about it. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on the show. What The temporary modular housing seems to be working well. Do you think that is the case? I do think that's the case. Uh, we've heard some pretty powerful stories, actually, about how it uh, is changing people's lives, people who have been living on the streets uh, or in and out of shelters for a while. And just the the difference that having a stable, um, supportive place to live and uh, as a chance to get all the rest of the pieces of your life together, um, those stories I find really powerful. Uh, and as well, I think it's important to note that the emergency services stats that we receive from police and from paramedics show that there hasn't been a significant increase in calls to the sites where this housing has gone. So um, so it's not causing disruption in the neighborhoods uh, that it's going into, um, but it is really changing people's lives uh, in a way that we need to do more of. Okay, so you're saying we need to do more of it, but where? Because we can't, I mean, I'm sure there's not just a whole bunch of empty lots sitting around in the city of Vancouver. Sure. So this motion is asking staff to uh, do a scan of what land might be available right now. We only look at uh, certain types, certain zones of land for temporary modular housing. That's how the program was first brought in. And I'm suggesting we expand that to include much more of the land uh, in Vancouver. Um, And in particular, I'm asking that we look at RS and RT zones, which people sort of think of as single-family zones. So um, of course, a lot of those homes have intergenerational families or, or more people living in them. Um, but that RS and RT land is some of the least expensive per square foot land in the city. Uh, and so I think it's an important place for us to be uh, looking to see what might be possible um, for both temporary modular housing and for permanent low-income housing, which of course is what we uh, need as well. Are there areas that you have in mind for this? Um, not particularly, but and that's why I'm asking staff to do this preliminary scan. I think it's really important that we as a council make well-informed decisions. And so knowing what land might be available, uh, what land might work, um, is useful, as well as knowing, uh, as I said, that the, the stats reflect that it's not increasing uh, any type of danger um, in neighborhoods. But as you said in the lead-in, we know both that we need more of this type of housing. We have more than 2,000 neighbors in Vancouver living uh, homeless. Um, But we also will need to eventually move some of the existing sites because they're on uh, land that will get developed with permanent housing down the road. So we really do need to be expanding our possibilities on this front. Do you anticipate pushback? Because I mean, I could see pushback if this gets moved into other single family home neighborhoods. Uh, Yes, I'm sure that there will be some opposition. People get nervous about things that are new and different for them, um, which is why uh, 
why I keep repeating that the stats show there isn't an uh, uh, increase in safety issues. I think that's really important for residents um, to know, even as they might feel a bit nervous uh, about what this would look like for their neighborhood. Um, and what I hear from Vancouverites all the time is that we need to be tackling homelessness, that uh, people deserve homes. It's certainly been a uh, uh, hot topic lately as we wrestle with how we house the folks living in tents in Oppenheimer and in other parts of our city. Um, I think across the board, we agree that we need homes for people. um, And so uh, there will be a bit of opposition, I'm sure, but I'm hopeful that we can um, rise above that and and make compassionate uh, and well-informed decisions. What has to go with that, Councillor Boyle? Like what we saw in Surrey was a concerted effort that it wasn't just housing that you moved people into, that you provided services as well. Isn't the key to making people feel comfortable about this is knowing that you're not just going to put people somewhere and forget about them? Absolutely. So existing temporary modular sites across the city have uh, supports, and that would be the plan for future sites as well, um, that we're not just moving people um, into a stable place, but we're supporting them and um, providing community supports and health supports uh, as as they uh, get the chance to get back on their feet. Okay, so is, is this the type of housing do you think will work for people? We've heard time and time again from people down at Oppenheimer Park is it that the, they don't find the SRO safe, they, they don't like the atmosphere there, that's dangerous, they don't want to be mm-hmm. like in that particular area. Is this the solution to that problem? I think there's no one solution, people uh, need different types of supports and different types of housing. But I do think that this is a, a pretty important, um, significant solution that we should continue uh, to look at. Absolutely. Um, and so I worked, I'll just say I worked yeah. for a number of years as an outreach worker in the downtown east side. Um, and I heard from from a number of people I worked with in the neighborhood that they wanted to stay in the neighborhood that was their home. Uh, and I heard from a lot of other people that they wanted a chance to move um, outside of that neighborhood, yeah. to move away from things that triggered them or um, or were not helpful, healthy influences so that they had that breathing room. And so we need uh, to be able to give people those choices so that they can be in the place that's best for their healing and recovery. All right. So when is your motion coming to city council? Uh, it'll come to council this Tuesday. All right. And so it's obviously going to be a lot of debate. Have you talked to other councillors about this? Uh, a little bit. And, and certainly council has been talking about Oppenheimer and housing um, a, a lot. Uh, and so I'm hopeful that we'll have support. I think we all agree that we need new solutions and uh, expanded solutions. All right. We'll see what happens. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Take care. That is Vancouver City Councillor Christine Boyle talking about a motion that she is bringing to the council meeting this week that she's saying that it's time to take single family areas in the city of Vancouver and open that up as well to temporary modular housing. 
It is the biggest transportation conference in North America, and it got underway today in Vancouver. It's called Railvolution, and something like 1,300 delegates are here to talk about buses, trains, you name it, all things transit-related. Now, there's a lot going on here, including ride-hailing is going to be talked about. Officials from Uber and Lyft are taking part. Uh, Now, TransLink is hosting the conference as well. TransLink CEO Kevin Desmond say they're excited to hear some unique perspectives from around the globe. But to talk more about this, we're joined now by Global News reporter Jennifer Palma, who is down there covering this conference. Jennifer, thanks for being with us. Thanks very much for having me. It sounds like there's a lot going on down there. So what is the focus today? Yeah, they're talking literally about everything. The main focus, they say, when I asked their CEO, uh, Dan Bartholomew, with Railvolution, he says they want to make it not only just mobility talk, but affordability talk, which, of course, we just can't get enough of that around here in the metro area, talking about how to get somewhere fast and how to do it in a nice, affordable way as well and have a nice lifestyle. So they're discussing all of that here, as well as just right down to biking, even how to set up paths how to city plan, and they even have people who are called influencers here. So they are really listening to everybody who has anything to share any kind of idea that would make the metro area move more efficiently, maybe improve transit, and even right down to making life more affordable. Right, which would be nice for so many people. What about Mm -hmm. ride hailing? Like, we're still waiting for it officially to get underway here. I understand that's also a part of the conference. Yeah, Uber and Lyft are here. They'll be talking on different topics, but obviously ride-hailing is a part of this. Anytime you talk transportation, nowadays you have to put ride-hailing into the equation. Uh, We are currently waiting to hear if Uber will, the representative here, will speak to us because no one's really been talking about what happened uh, since the, the cab industry put in that that request for a judicial review. They file papers in court. So Mm -hmm. uh, they're waiting to see if they can talk to us about it. However, when I spoke to Kevin Desmond, uh, TransLink CEO, about that this morning, I did ask him if TransLink is worried at all about ride hailing. And he said, you know what? As long as they're willing to not poach our riders and they want to partner with us, we are more than happy to partner with them, especially since, as we all know, TransLink, Friday, Saturday night, there's no service after one in the morning. Yeah. And if you're downtown, you need to get home. How do you do that? It's pretty, pretty, pretty tough if you want to have some kind of public transportation. There isn't any. So ride hailing would definitely fill that, that in for them, and he recognizes that, and he says as long as they're willing to work with them, He's willing to work with them as well. So interesting we'll because mm-hmm. that's something that we you know, we've talked about congestion when it comes to ride hailing. But I, I hadn't really thought about the part about that might actually cut into TransLink's ridership because they've seen ridership going up and up and up, right? Right. That's what I thought too. I was like, oh, I hadn't even considered that, but I guess so. If you can get around town for anywhere from nine to twenty dollars, depending on many factors, obviously, but for a reasonable amount, and you get driven right up to your location. That might take some people away from transit for sure. So he is willing to partner with them. But again, he wants to make sure that it's equitable, profitable, yeah. and workable for everybody. And how much of this conference is TransLink actually a part of? Well, they're one of the co-hosts here, along with the IBI Group, who is an engineering structural company, from what I understand. So they will be taking part. Uh, Kevin is on several of the panels, as far as I can tell. Uh, And he will be talking on various things, uh, from, you know, building close to SkyTrain stations to how they should look and where they should go. So... They have they have a pretty big role here, as well as local mayors and even an MLA is here today speaking. So 
everybody's got something to say. It's the first time it's been held outside of the United States. It's Canadian debut. Really? And they did rec- yeah, and they did recognize that Metro Vancouver is probably an ideal location for them to come and visit. And while it kicked off today, they've actually been here since Saturday, just kind of looking around the area and doing all the tourist hotspots, if you will. Oh, okay. So you talked about affordability there. We know that's a big problem here, but is that something that like when the when the conference talks about it, other cities also deal with the similar issue? Yeah, so they were talking mostly kind of what we're doing here already. When I talked to Kevin Desmond, I said, well, you know, are they going to offer up any ideas here that you'll take away? Like, why do you even want them here? And he said, a lot of the stuff they'll be talking about is stuff that we do here already, having uh, homes close to sky train stations, the condos, having the upper living arrangements with the lower industri- industrial or businesses, right? right? The mixed use. So he said, you know, we're already well on our path, but they're just hoping they can garner some maybe new ideas or come up with something new that will make it not just more affordable, but easier to get around the region. So it really will be interesting to see what they come up with, if anything at all. They've been doing it for 25 years. I'm sure yeah. there's some kind of expertise there. <laughs> there should be by now, yes. <laughs> right? So hopefully they can drum up some new ideas, because I think we're all ears. Oh, we sure. are all ears for that. So this <laughs> is going on all week then, Jennifer? Until Wednesday, it wraps up. Okay, thank you. No problem. Thank you. That's Jennifer Palmer, Global News reporter, who is uh, covering this conference. It's called Railvolution. We're going to be telling you some great and unique stories from communities all over Metro Vancouver as part of our Where We Live series. And so many of those communities have undergone you know, massive transma- transformations in recent years. And I-, I noticed that so much because having grown up in South Surrey, now when I drive through some of those neighborhoods, I go, look at all this stuff. There was nothing here before. And now there's neighborhood after neighborhood. And that's happening everywhere. Uh, Also in places like East Vancouver, right? That's a part of town that has really undergone a lot of change. It's a mix. It's got low-income housing. It's got some very expensive new homes as well. And sprinkled in between those two extremes are the heritage homes that have really stood witness to decades of change. Our Nikki Reitmeyer decided to explore one of those notable homes. And here's that story. Vancouver's east side. It's always been a part of town with challenges, an area that aims to strike a balance between the pros and cons of development, growth, and gentrification. It's an area with which in mind we ask the question, how do you accommodate new infrastructure projects without displacing the people who live there? For example, the construction of the new St. Paul's Hospital. The $1.9 billion project will be built at the foot of the viaducts, where they currently stand, where Pryor Street meets Gore Avenue. The doors of that new hospital are supposed to open in 2026. In that area now are lower rent suites, SROs, affordable housing, mixed in with the new and much more expensive houses and condos. As Global News reports, the St. Paul's project is raising concerns that people who currently live in that area, those living in the former of the two aforementioned categories of housing, will find themselves displaced. Advocates say while prices are rising, SRO supply is dwindling with gentrification. They fear construction of the new St. Paul's hospital will lead to the loss of 500 nearby units. 
one house of notable interest that has survived all of these transitions through the decades is located at 827 East Georgia Street. You could call it one of Vancouver's hidden gems. Who was the former owner who made this home so special? Believe it or not, Jimi Hendrix's grandmother used to live here. Her name was Nora. The house was built in 1904 by an old Vancouver police sergeant. Nora didn't move in until 1938, and she lived here with her husband until 1952. A plaque out front notes that this heritage home was once owned by the grandparents of Jimi Hendrix, who is described on it as an American guitarist and performer of notable stature in the 1960s. Even just a few years back, this home used to look a lot different. But in 2007, it was fully restored to its original appearance. The owners even painted it in the home's real, authentic colors. While her house remains, the cost of living in this neighborhood has greatly changed. Once the home of an immigrant who paid the bills by serving tables at a restaurant, 827 East Georgia was recently assessed at over $1.7 million. With the construction of the viaducts and other changes over the decades, Nora's community once went through the same thing East Vancouver residents face today infrastructure projects that threaten the affordability and accessibility of housing. But officials say low-income housing near the future hospital site is protected by a downtown Eastside plan. The cost of turning an SRO into market housing, prohibitive to most owners. If you want to convert an SRO room, it would now cost you $125,000 per room, plus you would need the uh, approval of city council. Advocates say better welfare rates and rent control could make housing more accessible, but in a rapidly changing neighborhood, even that might not be enough. Tanya Beja, Global News. And for CKNW's Where We Live series, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.